Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm glad you're here with us today. Before we get into this awesome episode with John Kaplan, the second trumpet player with the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra, I just wanted to take a second to thank the sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar with them, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. If you're someone who likes your instrument, but you're kind of interested in seeing what else might be out there, Houghton Horns is the place to go. They have an incredible selection of brass instrument makers in stock, including Adams, Bach and Conselmer, Eastman and Shires, Engelbert Schmid, Paxman, Tyne, Yamaha, and more. They even have vintage and consignment instruments available to check out as well. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. So whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello! Welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am really excited to be joined by John Kaplan, the second trumpet player with the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra. He is a former client of mine uh, in my coaching business, and so uh, we've been able to connect in that particular way, and so I'm super excited to be able to sit down with him. He's an incredibly smart guy. He's loves the trumpet, self-proclaimed trumpet nerd, so <laughs> I'm just excited to get his take on a lot of things um, and to see he also, again, with uh, his YouTube channel that he started, will be interesting to see what some of his struggles and what he feels like he's learned that would be valuable. So I hope to be able to present um, just a great conversation with him. So before we get started, John, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks for having me. Uh, with most of these interviews, we just get started by asking our guests to kind of talk about their beginning of the path, where they got into their instrument and sort of how things uh, transpired to get where you are now. So uh, however far back you want to start, uh, let's just get started with that. Okay, so um, I lived in Miami until I was 10 years old. And when I was in elementary school, I was not a particularly good student. Um, you know, I think my parents were sort of desperate for me to like latch on to something. And so when I finished fifth grade, they sent me to a university, university of Miami band camp where it was like a two week program where you could just pick an instrument and they would teach you how to play in about two weeks, just sort of get you started. And they wanted to send me for four weeks. And what that meant was I had to pick two instruments because um, they didn't offer like continuing education, you know, for the beginning program. So they asked, okay, what instrument do you want to play? And I was like, cello, because my dad played <laughs> cello when he was in school. And they were like, okay, well, what about the second two weeks? And I just, I had nothing prepared for that. Uh, and so I just said the second instrument that came to my mind, which was the trumpet. It was, it was just there. Like I wasn't really thinking like, oh, I really want to go into this and play the trumpet. It was just pick a second instrument and that was it. So second place choice. Um, and then, you know, I did the two weeks of cello and it was okay. And I was sort of enjoying it. The instrument was kind of annoying to carry around. You know, I just wasn't connecting with it maybe. And then for the second two weeks, I played the trumpet, had a great private instructor there named Stuart King. And 
I took to it right away. Like I was practicing on the couch, watching TV. My parents were like, wow, uh, you really are attaching to this quickly. And, <laughs> you know, after the two weeks um, at the camp, you know, they, they had the foresight to ask that person, Stuart, to be my private teacher. And so I was actually signed up for choir and middle school band because in Miami, they start middle school in sixth grade. And, you know, but this was sort of a new thing. So this was like an opportunity to change to band. So they wanted to give me a little bit of a heads up and some preparation on the trumpet before I actually switched the band and see if I really liked it. And so during the gap between the summer camp and when school started, I took lessons weekly with Stuart. And man, he was such a good teacher. Like looking back, you know, he taught me almost right away, like my chromatic scale, and we would play Arben's duets every single week. That was like mostly what we worked on was playing Arben's duets. So like right away, we've got, you know, learning all of the notes on the trumpet within, within my reasonable range, and then also learning how to play with people. And so by the time I got to sixth grade and I switched my elective to band, they tested me and they're like, oh, wow, you can play like accidentals and eighth notes. You're going to seventh grade band. And I was like, wow, <laughs> really? A promotion? Great. Um, and so it, <laughs> that's sort of where it started. Um, and it was the first thing I really connected with that I didn't feel like was um, work. It wasn't like homework. It was just something I wanted to do in my free time. Um, so I had a great time in sixth grade with an excellent band director. And my parents... Uh, Going back a little bit, actually, um, the previous summer, we had gone on vacation to Alaska, which is something that my parents had wanted to do their whole lives. Uh, so we went on a three-week three week vacation there, driving down from Fairbanks all the way down to Seward and then taking a little cruise to, to Vancouver. You know, I thought that that was unbelievable. I mean, I'd grown up in Miami. My parents lived in Miami almost their entire lives. And, you know, they just loved it so much that, you know, about a year later, we moved there. And... That really turned my education up on its head. You know, I, I felt really good about the Miami band programs, but, you know, the opportunities that I got in Alaska were completely different. Mm. I started on seventh grade band there, and I think my band director could tell I was a little bit restless. Um, you know, I'd worked out of the Standard of Excellence book that, you know, we were already working on at seventh grade band, and he handed me this flyer for Junior Youth Symphony. I didn't know what that was. didn't really matter. He was like, hey, you should audition for this. You know, I showed up, played an audition, got in. They were like seven trumpet players, seven middle school trumpet players in this group. And I remember the first rehearsal we played, um, you know, like a youth orchestra version of Holst's um, Jupiter. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Okay. And I just got into it. And I did that all the way through high school doing youth orchestra and stuff. And that was the beginning of a path that since then has been a total blur to me, you know, all the way through <laughs> middle school and high school. I did youth orchestra, did, you know, high school band, did jazz band. We did a little bit of marching band. You can imagine Alaska. That's kind of tricky. Um, just a little bit of marching. Yeah, band. that's a good point. I, I wouldn't have thought that, but as you say that, I was like, isn't it just snow all the time? <laughs> yeah, the football season ends at the end of September. So <laughs> we would we would do just enough marching band to like do like a block, you know, a block march out onto the field for the homecoming game in September. And then that was basically it. Oh, actually, but we would also do this um, parade called the Fur Rendezvous Parade, which is in February. So it would be like 10 degrees outside. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and we would walk like a one or two mile parade in downtown Anchorage. <laughs> And, you know, that's, <laughs> it's like there are multiple challenges there, right? Like it's the road is icy and like compacted snow. So like don't slip. That's the first rule. And then the second problem is you've got a metal trumpet, you know, right, with right. valves that operate down to a certain temperature. I mean, you can oil them all you want, but like once it gets down below, I mean, oil has 
a lower freezing temperature than than water. So, but I don't know exactly how cold. So certainly, like over the course of that hour of marching, you know, gradually people's valves would freeze, and then they'd have to just resort <laughs> to playing only the open notes or whatever notes they could play with that particular <laughs> valve down. <laughs> that is incredible. I was thankful to have that experience. Yeah. Um, it's character building. Yeah, for sure. There was one year where um, we had to march the same day as regional solo ensemble. And so I, I got excused from playing and I got to like hold the banner instead. Nice. <laughs> yeah, just to save chops. But still walking around in that temperature was not really good for my face, but it went oh. okay in the end. Um, anyway, <laughs> I, had, I had a bunch of really good band directors. Uh, my youth orchestra especially, we had this conductor who was also the principal trumpet player of the Anchorage Symphony named Lynn Weida. And he studied with Roger Voizan and Armando Gatala at BU at Boston. And he was just such a great influence on me. I mean, to have a principal trumpet player as your conductor is sort of a scary thought, but it always meant that he knew what I was going through, no mm. matter what was happening in a given rehearsal, like he understood what was happening. Um, I Also, I had a really amazing private teacher the whole time I lived in Alaska, so six years um, middle through middle school and high school named Carrie Mall, who was the third trumpet player in the Anchorage Symphony, and I think had ended up in Alaska through his association with the Air Force Jazz Band. Um, so he was very multi-talented. He had like a Dixie band that he recorded CDs with. And yeah, he was he was amazing and very patient. Um, so then when it came time for me to apply to schools, um, oh wait, actually taking a step back. Um, my, for a few years, I had attended the University of Alaska Fairbanks band camp which was just a two week thing. And it was like my favorite thing about every year. It was like spend all day doing band and orchestra related stuff. You know, there'd be orchestra, there was band, there was brass quintet, you know, there are three classes and stuff. And of course I just loved being at sleepaway camp. And, you know, after I did that for a few years, I was really determined to become a band director because all the people I had really idolized were band directors up to that point in my life. And after I went for the third year, my dad was like, you know, I think I want to send you, I think we should send you to a more, um, you know, comprehensive, you know, long form music festival type thing. And he had heard about Interlochen. And so he insisted that I apply to Interlochen. I didn't know what he was talking about. He made me make an audition tape for it. And I also applied to Brevard and Eastern Music Festival, which I didn't know anything about them either. But he just wanted me to give it a real go and see how much better I could get, you know, over the course of a whole summer, because those programs are four to six weeks long. Um, luckily I got into Interlochen and I was placed into their orchestra program and I met a lot of people that I still know and talk to to this day. Uh, Elmer Tarampi was there in the band nice. program. He was 14. He was like too young <laughs> to be in the high school program, <laughs> but I mean, there was no, there's nothing else they could do. I mean, he was, he was a prodigy, you know? Um, and then, uh, I met Matt Barker there who I ended up going to school with later. Mm -hmm. Um, Theo Van Dyke, who is amazing and still doing really, really cool stuff. Um, Acadia Coker, also a fabulous player. I was just so inspired by all these people that I was meeting there. But I also got this sense that, you know, going into school for performance was actually a pretty normal thing. I like didn't know that was a thing before that. I would just do, I was just thinking about music education degrees and wanting to become a band director. But going to camp there, I realized that like, this is something people actually do for a living. And it's something that if I wanted to do it, maybe I could. Um, so I did the summer at Interlochen and then the next year, my senior year, I applied to universities. Um, I didn't really have the, uh, self-confidence at that age to apply to conservatories for whatever reason. Like my teacher asked and said I should, and I was like, eh, cause I still wasn't sure if I really was going to become a full-time performer. I didn't know if I had the 
write stuff at that age. Um, and so I wanted to go to a public university where if I changed my mind later and wanted to do a different degree, you know, in math or whatever, I had a lot of other interests in high school that I could. And so I applied to a lot of public schools and I got into uh, the places that I did apply and I, the most prestigious of with, I, most prestigious of which was the Arizona State University School of Music, where I got to study with Dave Hickman, uh, world-renowned, you know, trumpet pedagogue. Yeah, he's and, the man. Yeah, he's he's pretty amazing. Like again, that was a good move by my dad. I really hadn't heard of him, not because he wasn't famous, but because I'm from Alaska and I just hadn't heard of a lot of really famous teachers. <laughs> Can I pause real quick? How does he, how did your dad know about? all of these different things. Uh, he is a master of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> he would just go on forums and just like find all this stuff. I mean, every turn of my career, you know, I feel like was partially based on him, like finding something and telling me about wow. it and, and saying, hey, you should look into this, you know. Sounds and that's very fortunate for you, you know. <laughs> still goes on to this day, definitely. Um, and so I went to Arizona State, you know, learned so much studying with with Professor Hickman. Um, you know, he has this two year course that he does with his junior and senior students um, called Pedagogy and Repertoire. I think a lot of universities have a class like that. But his version was particularly intense. Um, it was three hours on Friday afternoon, from three to six p.m. You sit in his office with the masters and doctoral students, and he would lecture, you know, for an hour and a half on pedagogy out of his pedagogy book, and then an hour and a half on repertoire, just like you're going down this like huge list of super important repertoire. Um, and one of the most um, educational parts of that class was that for we had to write four papers a year, four 10 page research papers, which to me was like mind blowing at that time. I was like, that's a lot of pages, um, 10 page research papers on us on uh, topics that he assigned us. And I thought writing papers wasn't that hard <laughs> until I started taking this class. I remember I sort of like crammed and finished my first one. And I was like, okay, I just wrote everything I knew about the particular subject he assigned and turned it in. I figured that would be good. And then I learned very quickly that what he wanted was more of a dissertation style, like intensely researched paper, like to the point where basically every sentence had a proper source for it, not only at the bottom of the page, but also in the bibliography and also like it had to be a respected source. It couldn't be like, oh, I read this on a Trumpet Herald forum page and I'm putting this <laughs> paper. That should be that should be respected. I'm not sure why that wouldn't be considered. <laughs> I know. So I had all this knowledge like floating around in my brain that I thought was legit. That was probably just from forums and stuff. And, you know, on that first paper, I learned really quick, like when he handed back the paper to me, it was like bleeding red ink, all 10 pages. You know, he's like, you don't get it yet. You don't understand how to do it. I was like, I guess I don't. I guess I don't know how to do this properly. Um, but Within two years of doing those papers over and over, by the end, I, I had it. You know, every sentence besides maybe an intro and an exit, you know, sentence for each paragraph had a proper source from like a journal or, you know, some respected uh, website or whatever. Um, and that sort of set up the thought process that's like blood into my current life. You know, I thought I was interested in trumpet related subjects and I was, but now I had this like new framework within which to learn really deeply about subjects through research. Yeah, um, I mean, we'll get into it, but what you're saying reminds me of this last video you just made on YouTube where you're saying, I have not been able to do the kind of research I want to do to absolutely. be able to. Yeah, that's such an interesting thing that it would have been developed from, like, it's an actual thing from your education, an actual tangible thing that you have kept and has benefited you all this time later. 
Absolutely. Um, some other things that happened when I was at ASU. Um, I competed in a concerto competition when I was a sophomore. I was I never fancied myself much of a uh, solo player for whatever reason. I just like wasn't that into it. I mean, I competed in solo ensemble in high school and I liked it well enough, but I always found playing in the orchestra to be more fun and more fulfilling because there's just more stuff happening. Uh, and it was also less attention focused directly on me when we were doing orchestra. Um, and so... Uh, but my friend, Jack Schwimmer, who was a saxophonist in the, at ASU at the time, had this great idea of a piece for us to play, the Rivier Concerto for Trumpet and Alto Saxophone. And he asked me to play it, and I was like, sure, I guess. And then he had this really intense rehearsal process. We memorized the whole thing, whatever. And, you know, the concerto competition there was organized so that there were, like, different divisions. There was, like, a brass and a woodwind and a string and a percussion division or something. Um, and so we went through more than one division, I think, the brass and the woodwind division. And we did, we, we won for the brass division. <laughs> and so I became a, a concerto winner at ASU just playing this amazing piece that I'd never heard before, the Rivier Concerto. Uh, and that was an unforgettable experience to like play in front of the orchestra there playing that piece. And I've never done anything like it since. <laughs> That's amazing. It was really cool. And it's not even something I, you know, when people think like, oh, you want a concerto competition, that has like sort of a certain flavor to it. But to me, it never felt like that because this was me playing with my friend. You know, this yeah, is something right. that we did together. Um, sometimes I hear that piece just randomly and I'm like, what is that piece? I feel like I worked on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, the lifetime, and, different lifetime. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was at ASU, I also studied, started studying with a, um, with a player in the Phoenix Symphony, the associate principal there named Benny Nguyen. And he played with the Chicago Symphony for a few years, studied with Chickowitz before that. And he sort of was like my extra mentor. Like David Hickman was an excellent teacher and I learned so much from studying with him, but I also had like an insatiable curiosity. And so studying with another teacher was sort of a natural choice. My, my parents encouraged it. Um, and so we started working together and that sort of really pushed into a super high gear, my focus on becoming an orchestra player. You know, kids who go to ASU and study with Dave Hickman, they could do anything. Many of them wanted to become soloists. Many of them wanted to become, uh, you know, full-time professors, universities. Like, he's especially well-known for producing, like, extremely high-quality doctoral candidates. Um, but, you know, that, studying with him alongside studying with Benny, I had, like, so many resources at my disposal to get um, good at the things that I wanted to get good at. Also, uh, credit to Professor Hickman. He was doing something there that I haven't seen since. Um, so we we had a one hour a week lesson with Dave Hickman, but we also had a second one hour lesson that was a group lesson that was specifically focused on excerpts. So at the beginning of the year, he would assign groups, you know, four groups total of like three or four people. And then those people were responsible every week for preparing you know, an entire set of orchestra parts from one piece. And then he would come in and, or we would come in and then he would drill us on it relentlessly for an hour, uh, rotating parts and everything. He was so determined to make sure that we knew all, not only all the major repertoire, but some of the like less well-known pieces too, that also just happened to have really hard trumpet parts in them. Um, so that in combination with my extra studies with Benny, uh, I was fully immersed in the orchestra playing world. Um, let's see. And then... Around junior year, I started thinking about what schools I wanted to apply to for a graduate school. Because uh, I knew that, you know, most people who got orchestra jobs nowadays had a little bit, you know, I didn't feel perfectly ready yet, you know, to go win a job yet. Um, and so I started looking at schools and I was just very matter of fact about it. Like, which are the two schools, wh where, what are the schools 
that have the highest placement rates for people who want to go into orchestra. And at that time, you know, professors Butler and Geyer were like standing out. <laughs> they were really yep. like a bright star, you know, <laughs> as well as Jim Welt at Colburn, um, both of them. Uh, I had especially learned from, when I was in a minor grad, I also went to Brevard Music Center for two summers. And my first summer there, I met my now friend and colleague, Gabe Schlesinger, and he studied with, um, with professors Butler and Geyer at Northwestern and then transferred with them to Rice when they went there. And when I first met him, I was like, what's the deal? Like, why are they so good? And he told me everything there was to know about what made that studio so special and supportive and strong and ready to win a job. I was like, okay, I guess something like that has to be my goal for graduate school. Um, and I would have been happy to go, let me put this another way. I was really into trumpet. It was like everything to me at that time, but I also still had a lot of other interests and I could see that the path for full-time performers was sort of narrow. And I didn't, I didn't want to like prolong the decision to change careers unnecessarily. You know, as much as I love trumpet, I wanted to put myself sort of on the line. And so I decided I was just going to apply to two schools for graduate school. I applied to Rice and I applied to Colburn because I figured if I couldn't get into one of those places, then maybe... I would be, maybe it would, I would be better off thinking about it, either applying again the following year or just looking into doing something else that I really enjoyed. Uh, I had a lot of other interests still. And so I put myself through this very nerve wracking year of preparing and hardcore studying for those auditions and doing as much as I possibly could to prepare. Um, and I look back at that time and I'm like, wow, how do I emulate that level of hard work now? <laughs> I mean, just like the level of intensity I felt at that time preparing for those things was so high. Um, but uh, luckily, I, I was very fortunate to take lessons with Professor Butler and with uh, Professor Wilt in the fall before my applications. I got a good insight into what they were looking for, did my pre-screenings, did my live auditions, and everything went really well. And so I, I, I had my choice, and I got to go to Rice. Um, which was a really serious turning point in the way I saw myself. I think almost immediately I was like, oh my God, how do I earn my spot there now? Now that they've asked me to come, I'm like, what, what can I do to show that I really um, deserve the opportunity? You know, I was sort of, I was, I still had sort of a low self-esteem. I don't know why. Like I, I had so much validation and so much support from my teachers, but I still wasn't sure that I could do it. Um, and so I went to Rice, and they put me in boot camp, <laughs> basically. Like, I was two years that I, I have very few, like, specific memories of the two years that I was there because it was, like, orchestra concert after orchestra concert, um, so many lessons, so many uh, meetings, so many times where I'm just, like, hanging out at school in a practice room and somebody else would walk in, one of the other students, and then we would start working on something, or a teacher would walk in and we'd start working on something. It was just this amazing, super supportive environment that also had the intensity of what I would learn would be uh, what it was like in actual orchestra position, uh, especially in the orchestra there with the director, Larry Ratcliffe. Um, it's, it's unbelievable, like how intense those rehearsals was, were, but the quality of the playing in that orchestra was so high. Um, I learned so much from being in the ensembles there. Um, so then I started taking professional auditions when I was a senior at ASU. 
the first one that came up that was convenient was for Third Trumpet in the Tucson Symphony. And so I did my best uh, to prepare for that. I did like flashcards and cut orchestra excerpts out of, you know, MP3 files and put them into a playlist and stuff and got as prepared as I possibly could doing mocks all the time. And I went to it with no expectations because, you know, first orchestra audition. I really didn't know what I was going to end up with. I didn't really care. I knew it was like just a, a ritual, something you had to do um, if you wanted to be successful someday at it. So I went in there, not too, not too high of an expectation, and but very prepared. And I kept playing well, round after round. Uh, I got to the finals with um, Jonah Levy and my other friend, Tim McCarthy. And, and Jonah won the position, but I was just like amazed to be there with these amazing players. And they named me the runner up and I was so honored uh, but also just blown away and very confused by the whole process. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that did lead to me playing with them quite a bit as, as a substitute that season, um, which taught me a lot of what it was really like to be in a professional full-time orchestra. Then I went to Rice and took sort of, a, I didn't have any real um, orchestra opportunities while I was there besides the super intense stuff we were doing at school. But I was taking auditions. They had two auditions for the Houston Symphony while I was there. Um, and in the summer between my math, my two years of my master's, I went to Tanglewood, which also taught me so much. I mean, <laughs> I was there with Elmer as well. Um, and also these other amazing players uh, who became good friends of mine. Uh, Paul Teresi, who's in the Utah Symphony now. Mm -hmm. uh, Aaron Schumann, who's in the mm -hmm. San Francisco Symphony. Elmer, of course, who's in Dallas. And um, Anthony Lumincelli, who's in Atlanta now, mm -hmm. previously Sarasota. And these connections have, have lasted a really long time, and I'm so proud to have known them and met them there. Um, Anyway, so I, I was finishing up at Rice, took some auditions. Right after I finished classes, I took a string of four auditions in a row, and one of them was for the Charlotte Symphony, and I won the job here, and I couldn't believe my luck. It was like two days after I had graduated from my, with my master's degree, and again, just like it felt like a blur, the whole experience from the moment somebody handed me a flyer for Junior Youth Symphony to the time where I ended up here, it's you could tell it's all coming out like in a jumble because it was just such a blur. <laughs> like there were so many times where I could have just decided to do something different. I was totally ready to do that. Um, but it just, it kept working out. I kept working hard. Uh, I kept the passion up and I had so many amazing mentors and influences along the way. One of the things I want to talk about before I forget is when you said you got into Rice, it was a major turning point in how you saw yourself. Um, this, I just did a video like literally yesterday on, on this exact thing, the difference between an amateur and a professional. And I made the point that there are lots of differences in the processes of how someone who sees themselves as an amateur or whatever in a professional, there's all sorts of differences we could talk about, but I would say the most important difference is how they see themselves and they see themselves, whether in my opinion, whether you are someone who's being paid for your work or not, you can be a professional in the way that you approach the work. So, you know, myself included, I waited until I won a job to see myself as a professional. I mean, I was ready to do it because I played well, but I was not acting. I did not see myself as a professional. So when you say you change, you saw yourself in a different way, do you mind expanding upon either what that was? I know you talked about having self-doubt. So what things were instrumental in you being able to sort of overcome some of that self-doubt or was it just your environment and your support you had there or like what things went into that? Well, 
when I was at Arizona State, I was sort of aware of the fact that there were so many great universities in our country, you know, so many great places you could go study trumpet. You know, at Arizona State, we had 12 performance majors. Many schools have even more than that. Um, I didn't see it as a foregone conclusion that if you went and got a degree in music, then you would be able to have a successful life as a musician. You know, for a lot of people, it's just one step and a long process of figuring out what it is that they really want to do. Um, and so when I put myself on the line like that and applied to just these super prestigious schools, I spent the whole year like shaking with nerves. I was just like, <laughs> I would talk to people about it all the time. I'm like, oh my God, is this a stupid idea? What am I doing? Like I could be doing this an easier way. Like I could apply to five schools, you know, apply for TA positions and all kinds of other great opportunities that would have taken me in other directions. But I knew that really the only thing I, I felt like I wanted to do was be a full-time orchestra player. Um, as much as I enjoyed playing the trumpet, that was the one environment where I felt not only the most comfortable, but felt like I had the, the most to offer, like the most experience built up from the music festivals and from, uh, you know, playing with Tucson and, and other groups. And so when I auditioned at Rice and, and they did accept me, um, that sort of blew my mind. I wasn't really expecting that because <laughs> I didn't, I just didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know when I went and played for them. I played the audition and I came out of it feeling like, okay, I don't think that went that well. I mean, it's a 30 minute long audition. Like you played like four, four intense solo etude things right at the beginning and then a bunch of excerpts and then you do crazy sight reading and then they ask you for a scale. <laughs> I remember <laughs> at the end of this 30 minute audition, um, Mr. Geyer asked me to play a C sharp melodic minor scale in two octaves. And I just stared at him blankly for like 45 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> like, what is that? <laughs> just, uh, he's looking at me and I'm looking back and eventually he just says, uh, flat third going up and natural minor coming down. And I was like, uh, okay, I think I got it now. <laughs> I think I got it. But I was just like totally brain dead by that point. And so I left the audition feeling like it really hadn't gone that well. But there's also, you know, an interview aspect built into it where they're like making you play hard stuff and then asking you really tough questions about like why you want to come to school there. Um, and again, it was a total blur for me, but I came out of it not being really sure how it went, whatever. You know, it's, it was my dream school, you know, or one of my two dream schools. And so if it didn't work out, that's okay. It's just how things go. Um, but when they did accept me, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God. Now I have to like, they have such a like legendary status around the two of them, but also around all of their former students like yourself, you know, who, who go off and do great things, uh, right after graduating or even within years of graduating. And, uh, to see myself as potentially entering into that kind of education, uh, put the nerves on even more, even though I knew I'd have their help. I wasn't totally sure I could like meet their demands. I just didn't know yet. I mean, they might have known more than me about it at the time based on my audition, but I certainly didn't have that belief in myself yet. Um, and so I spent the whole summer like wondering if it was like a fluke, you know, if I had just like played really well that one time or whatever. But then when I got there, I, I think it was apparent, I, I got assigned to um, study with Mr. Geyer. And from the first day, he was such a um, comforting, like grandfatherly influence on me. Like, yes, there were in very intense moments during lessons sometimes where he was very frank with me about something. I remember after my first solo class, I played the Bach Vivaldi piccolo thing. And I think it went pretty well, you know? And I, I went to a lesson and I was just sort of like, hey, I survived, you know? And he was like, okay, I've got a few questions for you. And I was like, what? And he's like, did you record that? And I was like, 
no. He was like, big mistake. Now you'll never know what it sounded like. You just have your impression of how it went and what we can tell you. We can give you comments, but you'll never hear it and you'll never be able to apply those comments to what actually happened. Record everything from now on. Every time you get it for solo class, every audition that you can manage to record, just do it because then you can apply the comments you get later to that recording and you'll always have that to reference. Um, second of all, he was like, it just wasn't that in tune. Yeah, I don't know if you know what thing. that is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I mean, okay, like, tell me what that's about, you know? And so we started talking about, you know, triggers and saddles and playing with drones and the stuff. The trumpet and... is the most out-of-tune instrument in the entire <laughs> orchestra. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he also would say that, you know, he's like, you know why trumpet playing has gotten so much more beautiful in the last, you know, 50 to 80 years? And I was like, why? And he's like, because they play more in tune now. <laughs> I was like, oh, Right. Okay. And so I really got like doubled down and focused on that. But he was also, he had also had a keen sense of when I was feeling uncomfortable, not only in lessons, but also, you know, Professor Butler and Geyer had this um, reputation, at least when I was at Rice, they did, of coming to a lot of the orchestra rehearsals. You know, we'd be rehears rehearsing in, um, in Studi Concert Hall, and they'd be sitting up in the balcony right in the middle. And, and Professor Butler would be doing like hand signals and stuff at us, like, okay, you gotta play a little bit more ahead or like couldn't hear you or like, oh, it's a little bit sharp, you know? And <laughs> eventually I, I, told, I told them I had a Fitbit so they could like text me and I could see it on my watch. And then Mr. Guy would start texting me during rehearsals <laughs> and giving me feedback and stuff. Um, so it really was like boot camp. Like I was really getting like very close attention from them while I was there. And it was really intense, but also, like you said, I, I started to see myself in that professional light. Like everything I did had to be approached with that professional mindset. You know, even though I wasn't being paid, it felt like I was because I was getting this unbelievable experience at school. And at Rice, graduate school is free for graduate students. And, you know, I not only felt so lucky to be there, but I felt like I had to make every moment count. Uh, so basically everything that happened there, I was trying to pre prepare as intensely as I could. Uh, which led to me being super stressed out all the time because I didn't know how to handle that intensity yet. But um, it also very much prepared me for what was to come later in my professional career. Uh, in some ways, that was still more intense than what I feel at work now. Yeah, I would, you know, it's when Billy Gerlach won the national job. I sent Barbara a text. I was at that same audition uh, and I sent Barbara a text I was like, that's amazing. Like, congratulations, you know. Bailey told me, like, he took Atlanta, something in Atlanta the, the week before, and it did not go well, or he didn't advance, and then he won national. And he told me what that week was like. It's just insane. Like, Barbara took every single comment and was like, we're going to fix all of this. And it's like, <laughs> okay. But then I texted her and I said, that's amazing. Congratulations. I don't know how you do it. Like, I don't know how you do this thing where your students are so successful. And she said to me, Ryan, you're part of that. And it's like, I didn't, it's like, because I am less successful at auditioning than I was when I was with her, I feel like I am no longer, I don't see myself as like part of that sort of line, that lineage anymore. Even though like I went to that school, it's, it's weird. I, I totally hear you. It's so weird how you feel, not this pressure, but this thing of like, it's like, if you're not succeeding, it's probably you. You know what I mean? It's so weird how I feel that way. Yeah, I felt like I'd given myself every opportunity to succeed. So if that wasn't enough, then I 
definitely feel comfortable going to do something else. Yeah. <laughs> like I had so much of the best instruction and the best orchestra training, you know, summer festivals and even the high school youth orchestra. There are so many pieces I come across today, like in professional work that I played for the first time in youth orchestra. And I'm just like so thankful I did it back then. <laughs> it's like just, nope, don't have to learn this one. I remember doing this for three months, you know, and then playing a single concert. Um, yeah, absolutely. I felt like I was becoming part of something a lot bigger than me. Like it wasn't, the career wasn't just about me and my success anymore. It was about, I don't know, using what I had. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all the resources I've been given. And for me, I'm coming to terms with, if I don't become principal of X orchestra that I was like, that's what has to happen or, or it's quote, not worth it. I'm becoming much more okay with like Barbara will quote, still be proud of me. You know what I mean? I, not that I'm living for her, but I feel like there's this, there's still this connection towards like you, you're part, yeah, you're part of like this lineage. And like, I feel like sometimes this pressure comes with it and to be able to sort of separate yourself and be like, it's totally chill if I don't actually do this thing that everyone said I was capable of when I was like 21 years old, getting <laughs> drunk all the time, you know? Well, and let's not, you know, mince words here. Like you're doing that thing. Like you've won two major auditions. You're you're playing this awesome job with the Alabama Symphony. I think that these, yeah, I love working for the Charlotte Symphony. When I was in school, I had not heard of the Charlotte Symphony. I went to Brevard Music Center, and there was a faculty member now that, or there's a faculty member there that I'm now, I know very well. His name is Bob Rydell. He's one of the horn professors at Brevard, and is one of my colleagues here at the Symphony. And that was the first time I'd heard of the Charlotte Symphony. And I was like, "Hey, he's a great player. I'd never heard of that group. Where is that? South Carolina, you know?" And then it just turned out that the first gig that I won was here, and I got to meet him. And I was like, "You know what? This is a great place to work. Like, I have great colleagues. Uh, you know, the vibe here is awesome. Charlotte is an awesome city. Uh, it, it, I, I felt so lucky just to be a part of this here." Um, and, and my first colleague here was, there was actually only one other trumpet player in the section when I won the gig here and his name was Rich Harris. And he was the associate principal trumpet, but was acting principal because John Parker had left for Houston at the time. And, you know, the level of professionalism he brought the job was so high. And he was also just like, took me under his wing. Like he taught me everything there was to know about like, you know, not only playing in the orchestra, but like orchestra politics and the other stuff that I really hadn't been taught. Uh, how to deal with. But it was funny, he was only there for about three months because uh, he got a contract in Houston for a second. Like he got offered that in like December and then left in January. So we only had a few months working together. Um, during my first two years, I was so lucky to have a former, um, uh, not a former, a, a friend of mine from Rice that we were the same class at Rice. His name is Austin Williams. And he was the runner up for my job in the Charlotte Symphony for second trumpet. And we were short an associate principal because Rich Harrison moved up and we were short a player. And so we asked him to come play a year contract. And that was like amazing. He moved in with Courtney and I. Courtney and I had just gotten married. Um, <laughs> Co-producer of John Talks Trumpet, by the way, Courtney. Uh, <laughs> um, and Austin moved in and we got to go through all of these new experiences together. Like every new, every concert, Every single thing afterwards, there was a debrief. We would listen to our pocket recordings. You know, we talk about the crazy stuff that happened, like all the like union rules we were learning and all just like the, the unusual parts of, of the job. Um, I was so thankful to have Humor here with me for those first two years. Now he's doing an acting contract in St. Louis. Pretty amazing. He totally deserves that. Really, really amazing player and great guy. Um, 
And it was just so good for me to, to get to go through those experiences with someone else. Um, and then my second year, uh, we had an opening for Principal Trumpet. And let's see. No, actually, it was during my first year that we had the audition. And Rich Harris was the winner of that audition. So he was, the, <laughs> <laughs> so he had the uh, distinct honor of being the first person, at least in the Charlotte Symphony, maybe like in any Ixom orchestra to win all three positions in a trumpet section. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> he started out as second in 2009, and I think he won associate in 2014, and then he won the 2018 principal trumpet audition. Um, but he was already in Houston, and it seemed like things were going really well there. Uh, and then he subsequently won the second trumpet audition um, for the Houston Symphony that happened of May that year. And so there was a runner-up of that audition. His name is Alex Wilborn. And I sort of knew Alex because I'd seen some videos of him on YouTube, but also my wife, Courtney, when we were in college, she was an ensemble manager at Interlochen. And Alex was a student in the band program there and played in uh, the World Youth Wind Orchestra. And he, she was she was texting me that summer. I remember I was a freshman uh, in college and she was like, there is this amazing trumpet player here. And I was like, sort of intimidating, you know, cause I was young too. And he's like, talk, she's talking about a high schooler, right? I'm like, wow, he sounds amazing. I looked him up, you know, guy can play lead, guy can do anything. And so when I saw him at this audition and he got runner up, I was like, hey, that's super exciting. Like we had Rich and he was amazing. And now we get this, <laughs> this other guy who is like, you know, we're building sort of a new thing here, like a new section um, that I happened to be the first member of, you know, after Rich left, I was the only one here that had, you know, regular full-time status. So we had Alex and then Austin stayed for another year. So he ended up here for two years. Uh, then Austin went on to St. Louis and we got Gabe and then he won the audition. And I don't know, I feel so lucky to be surrounded by my friends. You know, Alex and I hit it off right away from the first time he came to play with us. Um, during my first season, Rich had already left. We were going to do, uh, Sweet from West Side Story. And Austin and I looked at each other and we were like, yeah, it would be great if neither of us had to play this part. <laughs> <laughs> like we could give it a go, but like we really need at least one other person, if not two more people, because we needed, we only had two people in the section at the time and there were three parts plus probably an assistant or something. Um, and Alex had just gotten run up at the audition. I'd seen some of his videos playing lead and I was like, that's the guy, let's get him down here. He was doing a master's at Juilliard at the time. I think he had to like change out of an orchestra rotation or something to come down and play with us. And it was just like, he showed up and he was like this fearless beast. <laughs> you know, you walked in first rehearsals with like a professional orchestra and just laid it down. You know, uh, I was just like, okay, I can get used to this, you know? Yeah. And, and just that first week we hit it off, you know, became quick friends. We were happy to offer him an acting contract initially because Rich Harris um, had, he was technically our principal trumpet after winning the audition. And so even though Alex was the runner up, he was acting for a while until Rich uh, got tenure in Houston. And then Alex was able to sign a full-time contract with the orchestra. Um, Gabe and I have known each other since 2013 at Brevard. We were friends back then, we're friends now. I feel so, so lucky to have these amazing trumpet players and friends as my colleagues here in the section. I think this is a really important thing to talk about. What Everything you just said was you're just saying you have a good quality of life. Seems Absolutely. like you're happy where you're at. Now, If while we're not mincing words, right? While we're in this space of not mincing words, nobody talks about that when you're in school. Nobody says that your goal should be, let's figure out what a good quality of life for you would be. It's always about you should work as hard as you possibly can to get to the quote highest orchestra, you know, the big to top five, top 10. That's where, that's where you land. So I feel like we have musicians everywhere. 
who are in good quality of life situations who are not satisfied because they're not in one of the, you know, high paying, you know, whatever orchestras where cost of living is super high. So it's like, you know, a trade off and all that kind of stuff in that regard. But we're not like, we're not looking to the quality of our life to determine, is this the right fit? We're just saying, well, it's not Chicago, so I'm not satisfied or it's not San Francisco. So I'm not satisfied but you're basically bucking that trend with everything you're saying right now, which I appreciate because I also agree being in Alabama offers me a few opportunities that I don't know if I would have in terms of time and a orchestra like New York that works incredible amounts of hours and services and stuff like that. So I think it's a conversation uh, worth acknowledging and even having um, because it, I feel like you don't when you're in school, nobody really has this conversation. Yeah, it's easy to become focused on those top 10, 15, 20 orchestras, you know, and there are 50, I think 52, ICSOM, which is International Conference of Symphony Orchestra Musicians, orchestras uh, that offer full-time wage for their work. And yeah, I mean, it varies based on the job, you know, in terms of like the tier or whatever, but every city has the possibility of having a high quality of life, you know, depending on who you're with, who you're working with, how you feel when you go to work, how people treat you at work, how you feel treated by your employer, um, how you like the city generally. I mean, Charlotte is like, I've lived in a, a lot of different places in my life. Like I lived in Miami, you know, millions and millions of people. Uh, we moved to Alaska. I actually lived in Eagle River, which is a town outside of Anchorage, which has about 30,000 people. Yeah, it's a little bit bigger than people imagine for Alaska. But, and then Anchorage as a whole has about, or at least at the time, had about 350,000 people. Um, and so that's a pretty, pretty small, big town, I guess it's the biggest city in, in Alaska anyway. And then I went to, uh, Arizona state, which is in Tempe, which is just outside Phoenix. Again, one of the nation's five biggest metropolises. Um, and then after that Houston, oh my God, <laughs> like <laughs> the first time I drove in Houston, uh, I remember I had a U-Haul trailer behind me. We were going to Ikea to pick up some new furniture for the apartment. And I, tr I got, on on the on-ramp and tried to get on the highway and the driving there was so aggressive i like couldn't merge onto the highway and so i had to just get off the highway immediately because i couldn't get off the <laughs> on-ramp lane <laughs> and i remember just like i was just so frustrated it was like my first instance of like being super overwhelmed by traffic uh, you know and courtney was with me and she was just watching me like she's like do you need to pull over and i'm like ah oh, this is gonna take me a little bit to get used to <laughs> um i mean not only is it super confusing to drive around there but also the the character of the driving is a bit different a bit more aggressive than i was used to sure, sure. i definitely became a road warrior while living there um but uh then moving to charlotte oh my god i'm so appreciative of just like a regular medium-sized American city. <laughs> like, I think we have one or two million people here in the metropolis and in the metro area. And, uh, you know, traffic's not too bad. It's not, you don't have to drive super far, you know, to live somewhere comfortable. I live about 20 minutes from work at most. Uh, and I have, you know, there's restaurants like five minutes away. No traffic between me and there. No traffic between me and downtown usually. Um, and that lends itself to a certain flavor of like how people just feel living in the city in general. It's just a nice, comfortable experience. Um, and, you know, all those things together, I, I could see myself being here for 20 or 30 years. I think any of us that get one of these orchestra jobs, you know, we, we immediately start meeting people in the orchestra and you realize that they've been there for 25 years. And it's like, oh my God, I haven't even been alive 25 years. You know, at the time, <laughs> by the time I won my job here, I was 24. And there are people here who've been here for 30 years, 35 years. And that was just mind blowing to me. And 
35 years is so much more sustainable when you're around people that you like and that you love to work with. Um, I think it is a really important conversation, one that I wasn't aware of at all when I was in school, because again, it's like very focused on winning that biggest job. But, you know, there are not only 52 Ixam orchestras, but there are lots of ROPA or Regional Orchestra Players Association orchestras that also offer a high standard of living. Uh, my friend Sam Huss, who you've interviewed before, is in the Richmond Symphony, and he, he loves it there. They have a great thing going there. Um, you know, I, I think there's so much... Um, happiness out there for people who are willing to make themselves feel comfortable in the situation that they're in, you know, yeah. not feel like they have to reach for more all the time. Will I keep auditioning? Sure. You know, when the right thing comes up, you know, the right position and the right orchestra and the right city, you know, I have a list somewhere that's like, you know, my wife and I had to like agree on, it's like, okay, I never want to live in this city, you know, or it's like too expensive to live in this particular place, or I can't imagine playing in this particular, um, size orchestra or like intensity of schedule. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things to consider, you know, and I, it makes me very, very thankful to be here. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, of course, that's a luxury or a privilege afforded that you have a job now and when you don't have a job and you're in, maybe you're in school and you can say, well, I want to stay in school unless the right job and I'll audition for that. But once you're out of school, you're basically taking everything. So you don't always have that luxury. But I think in my opinion, being able to say or acknowledge that like the job will not be the entirety of my life. There will be other aspects to it and finding a place where the entirety of my life is something that reflects what is valuable to me. I feel like is what we should be saying to people like wherever you end up, hopefully it's a place that you fit and that's like your lifestyle. If you're someone who want, like enjoys being busy and the hustle and bustle, maybe New York is like the right place for you, you know? Yeah. And I just, like you said, what you said, not not always wanting to reach for more. I think that's super important. It's not settling and saying, I failed if you determine that your life circumstances are good. I think. Absolutely. I, I think that this has been crucial to um, my audition strategy, actually. Uh, throughout my whole life, when I auditioned for ASU, when I auditioned for Rice, I always had... Um, a really comfortable idea of what my, not backup, but like what I would do if that particular opportunity didn't work out for me. You know, like I had three other great schools I applied to for my undergrad. For my master's, if I didn't get into either Rice or Colburn, I was perfectly happy to either stay at ASU and get a master's in something else or like go get a bachelor's in something else or whatever. Maybe teach for a little, maybe teach trumpet a little bit or whatever. When I was at Rice and I was auditioning near the end of my time there, you know, I was like, okay, well, I can stay here in Houston and teach. Lots of people do that. There's so many students in Houston. <laughs> like, it's such a big city that goes out so far. Uh, there's lots of private students. There's plenty of gigs. You know, I'll make it work. And I, it, it helps that I had this really long-term relationship with my wife. Um, Courtney and I started dating my freshman year at ASU. And it's been super serious since like, I don't know, the second month, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been together for nine years now. And she was there throughout everything. She was always, like, I'm always bouncing, you know, my nerves and stuff off of her and have for nine years, uh, my insecurities, you know, and she's always reflecting them back at me and letting me know what is truly important to focus on and what's not. And so I knew as long as we were together, we would find something that made me feel good about what I was doing, even if it wasn't exactly what I had envisioned for myself initially. So when I was auditioning at the string of auditions that I took um, around the time I wanted my job here in Charlotte, I was perfectly happy with not winning any of them. I had this other plan. 
Um, you know, for me, I think the idea of like hanging everything on a single audition just freaks me out. I can't imagine doing well in an audition where I feel like, oh my God, everything's on the line. This is my one chance, you know? <laughs> and like for some people that works, like maybe a more competitive mindset or something where it's like, oh, I need this, like this is mine, you know? Maybe that helps a lot of people, but for me, it just added so much extra anxiety to something, I, I just didn't need it. I just didn't need it. And every audition I've taken since, it's been, hey, I've got this awesome job that I really like already. Anything that I get past this would just be frosting, you know? And it would just be different too. Like I'm here with my friends, like great colleagues. I Not only am I the second trumpet player with the symphony, but I also work on the stage crew, which is three members, me and the stage manager, JJ, and uh, one of the other horn players in the orchestra named Andrew Farova. And I love working with these guys. I had no idea when I was in school that I would have any interest in like setting up chairs and like showing up early to work to, uh, you know, be in a truck and like drive all the percussion equipment somewhere. But that taught me so many important things about being happy in life. I don't, I just wasn't expecting it. Like after my first year here, I got a call from Andrew and he was like, hey, we're short a member on the stage crew. Do you want to join? It comes with a little, you know, a little pay bump or whatever. And I was like, sure, why not? I'm flattered you asked. Sure, I'll take it. Um, and that job has taught me especially, well, okay, thanks to my boss, JJ. It, anytime there's a problem, any like somebody's holding us up, it's taking a lot longer to set up than it's supposed to, taking a lot longer to tear down and drive all the equipment back to where it's supposed to go than it's supposed to. He just looks at me and he's like, new day, new way. And I'm like, oh, this is not a big deal. No matter what's happening, I'm not going to get all intense and like worked up about it. I'm just going to be patient. Just going to wait. And then it's always over eventually. And that sort of vibe has like permeated my life. Like sometimes things don't go the way I plan it or, you know, I have to do things in a different way than I initially intended. New day, new way. Absolutely. Um, I, and I'm so thankful for that totally unexpected work experience. So you mentioned your audition process being sort of eased, I suppose, uh, as a result of having options. Uh, I know one of the things that you had told me when we started working together, obviously my thing is all about organization and you were telling me that's one of the things you feel very strong uh, in terms of organization and having a, a strong process. I'm always interested in learning about other people's processes. It surprises me that we didn't actually talk about your process. Um, I guess we were too busy talking about what it, me or myself, but I'd be curious if you wouldn't mind if it's possible to sort of uh, collate it and, and share with us what it looks like to for you to prepare and, and why you feel like it's so effective for you. Okay, so my preparation has several sort of aspects to it. Um, in terms of my ability, okay, we go back to my school career a little bit. I liked school, but I was never a super disciplined homework doer. And so I was always... I mean, I, I would turn on the work, but there were a lot of times where it was late or whatever. Um, and I did have good grades, especially once I started band in middle school. I started having good grades in school after that for whatever reason. Um, but I was never like, oh, I just got home from school. I'm going to do all my homework right now, you know, in order, you know, and just <laughs> study and do it all perfectly. Like, no, that's just not the way I was. I would do it in like fits and spurts. Sometimes it would be like, you know, four diet Red Bulls in and three o'clock in the morning, like the night before something is due, you know, some huge project. Like, that's just the way I was. Sorry. Um, did you just say diet Red Bull? Yeah, the kind of <laughs> zero sugar. <laughs> like you're drinking Red Bull, but yeah. you're trying to be a little healthy about it. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> I know. Well, because my dad is a is an avid Costco shopper. And so that's what they had. They had like, you know, 20 racks of Diet Red Bull, like the light blue version. That's so hilarious. I still have a taste for that now, even though that's not a lot of people's favorite. Sorry thing. to interrupt. I just thought that was like, that feels like an oxymoron to me almost. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> but I started drinking coffee when I was like in sixth grade. So by, you know, even by eighth grade, I was already on the strong stuff. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, Sorry. That's amazing. No, it's, it's all right. Um, anyway, and so the way that sort of uh, becomes relevant in my audition preparation is that there are a lot of aspects to control. And I've learned little tricks from various teachers over the years that helped me sort of reduce the amount of uh, overt studying and practicing time that is necessary for an audition. So it, I don't want to call it a shortcut. It's more like an efficiency hack, I guess. Uh, on my channel, I do have one video about my audition booklets, which is one part of it. Um, not only do I put like all the excerpts in the same book with Spiral Bound and, you know, I have a, a fancy front cover with like the date of the audition and picture of the stage and stuff on it. Um, that's one aspect of my preparation because then it's really easy for me to just pull out the booklet and start practicing. Um, and it's got all the information in there you know, not only when the audition is, where exactly it is, when my check-in time is, when the deposit is due, that kind of stuff. Um, but the other aspects of it are the actual playing part, which is I'll take the audition list and I'll make, um, I'll make index cards for every excerpt and every portion of an excerpt. So on a regular audition list, that might be 25 or 30. I remember I did this for my audition at Rice, and it was actually like 50 cards because at the time they required, uh, you had to learn the whole principal part to Petrushka for the audition. Come I know. on. I know. And the whole first <laughs> movement of Mahler 5, the principal part. And so I just broke all of those things up into sections. You know, it's like dance with the bears and like here's the ballerina's dance and here's the waltz and here's the front page and whatever. So like Petrushka on its own was like, 25 excerpts, I think, you know, yeah. I had it broken up like that. Uh, Cause there's so many like little hard things that are not the ballerina's dance. Of course, in the end, they only asked for the ballerina's dance, but, <laughs> but I was prepared for anything they Jeez. asked for. Um, anyway, but for a regular professional audition, I would say there's 25 or 30 cards. Um, I think Benny taught me this system, uh, but I'm, I've heard it from other places. So I'm not sure who came up with it, but basically what you do is if you have all these excerpt cards, index cards, and as you play them, after each time you play it, you give yourself a rating of one, two, or three. A one is, I could play this in my sleep. I feel really comfortable with this. Two is, it's sort of in progress. There is something that's kind of tricky about it or like doesn't really go the way I want every time, but it's like getting there. And then three either means I don't know this excerpt or there's some technical challenge that I haven't figured out how to deal with yet. And so you've got everything rated and I would do basically random sets, either pulling from all three piles and have like an even mix of ones, twos, and threes for audition rounds that I would play. Or sometimes I'd be like, okay, right now I'm going to do an all threes round. And instead of actually just playing them top to bottom, I would do them at half speed or I would dig into the super technical part for like three or four minutes and then move on to the next card. And then inevitably that would lead to like slow, you know, consistent improvement on that particular excerpt until the point where most of the excerpts were either in the one or two column. I mean, we can't always have everything be super easy, but... Um, that was a really easy way for me to track how things were going without having to like keep a journal necessarily. Mm -hmm. I just had yeah. this stack of cards and they had numbers written on the back that had been erased like a hundred times and rewritten. Uh, sometimes things would end up being a one and then I would come back to it after a few days of not pulling it out of the stack and I'd be like, oh shoot, that's a two now. 
Um, there'd be other times where something was a three, and then it would take like a diff like an equipment change, like maybe like, oh, let me try this on E flat trumpet or on with this particular mouthpiece or with this kind of mute, and then suddenly it's a two. And I was like, oh, great, that saved me a lot of time. Excellent. Um, and then the third aspect of my audition preparation, and I think the most important and the most easily overlooked is, you know, we all know we're supposed to listen to excerpts, right? But I found it really um, time consuming to listen to them in sort of a normal way where it's like, okay, I'm gonna listen to Mahler 5. So you end up listening to like the whole first movement or something, or just zooming through it to find the particular excerpts you're trying to find. But that takes a lot of psychological effort to sit down in front of the computer and say, okay, here's my excerpt part. I'm going to go find this particular part in the music, listen to it a bunch of times and take some notes. And so eventually I came up with this way of doing it where um, I have an Apple computer. So I would just buy the song on iTunes, whatever it was, my favorite, you know, I pick a few recordings usually, maybe two or three of a particular excerpt or a particular audition piece, I guess. And then I'd drop that into GarageBand and I would cut out everything except for the excerpt and maybe like four measures to pick up or whatever amount of time I needed before it to kind of get the vibe mm -hmm. of the excerpt and then cut it off just as soon after the excerpt was done. And then I'd make a master playlist for an audition so that I could listen to the whole audition list in random order on the way to and from school, on the way to and from work, whatever. It took no effort at all. And it was like fun because we forget because auditions are such hard work that the excerpts that are being asked for Trumpet auditions are some of the best music written for orchestra trumpet players. Like right, that's right. some of the best stuff out there. So you have <laughs> these super awesome recordings cut up just to the part that you need and you're rocking out to them in the car. You know, I find myself like conducting and like dancing and just like goofing around, but like really feeling it. Um, just listen to it a ton in like the month before the audition. And that saves me a lot of work. Like I'm not sitting there trying to memorize like what the tempo is or like how to set myself up to play a certain excerpt because now the setup is the orchestra part that's in my mind, you mm -hmm. know, and hearing the the players in that famous orchestra doing the excerpt as well as possible. Um, it You know, the way they do it doesn't always match exactly the way I'm going to play it, but having the whole orchestra in my mind has made it so much easier to not only set up and knock out an excerpt, but also for the, I believe, the committee to here that I know the context of every excerpt. Yeah, you know, man. they're not only listening for like, hey, can you play this, all, these notes in this order with this technical challenge? They're also listening like, hey, have you done this before? <laughs> like, do you know what it's actually like to do this in the context of the orchestra? And I think this method has saved me so much time and has infused my playing with, um, Benny always called it like voodoo. Like vo you're playing voodoo poker with a committee. Like you're trying to convince them that you have more experience than you actually have. <laughs> you know, and and that's that's what this does for me. Like hearing the orchestra play it like that over and over, it was a substitute for actually having performed it a bunch in the orchestra. And so I sit down and take the audition. Sounds like I, or I hope, sounds like I sort of know what's going on. Um, so that's sort of the three pillars. I have organized music via the audition booklets. I have an organized way of listening through my playlists, and then I have an order of organized way of practicing through the grading of the index cards. That actually, I don't have very many questions at all. You know, you know me well enough to know I'd start digging. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory. So the only question I have are, have you, are there any things that are, how do I say this question? Like it's, that's not covered. That is sort of like you just do it because you have done the process enough that like if somebody else ran this process, they might not know this little intricate detail. And then number two, is there, is there anybody that this wouldn't work? Can you imagine a scenario where this wouldn't work for somebody? Well, 
You know, I think there are a lot of people who, I guess I'll go piece by piece. So with the booklet, some people feel like they would rather be able to reorganize the excerpts, have the music in whatever order they want, especially when they go to an audition and there's an audition round and they're like, oh, well, Mahler's first, so I'm gonna put this first in the book. For me, the way I cover that is when they hand you the round sheet for Breedloom or whatever, it has all the excerpts in a row. Uh, like the first thing I do when they get in the warm-up room is not take my trumpet out, I get my pencil out and I write down what page each of the things is on and what equipment specifically I'm gonna need for every excerpt. Okay, and then that, and then I even write into the book, like, okay, the first excerpt of Mahler, so I'll have it open to that page. And then at the bottom of the excerpt, I'll draw a little arrow and say, next, page 19, you know, and I'll turn over to it, and that's like a Strauss or a Scheherazade. Sure, sure. Um, I think the listening part is good for every single person. It's so easy to think <laughs> like, oh, I know this excerpt. Like, maybe you do, but there are several versions of this tempo or there's several versions of this excerpt at different tempi, or there are different sort of stylistic ways of playing it. And having heard more than one sort of gives you an idea of like what the um, average interpretation would be. So make sure you always check more than one recording. Um, I think when it comes to the grading and the, the index cards, that ends up being the sort of the most complicated part with lots of intricacies. So, you know, when I tell people about it, almost always they're like, oh, okay, so I'll pull mock rounds. How many do I do a day? And that's it. And I'm like, well, I do do mock rounds with those cards, you know, and I'll do more as I get closer to the audition. Um, but I also use them as just a practice structure, you know, it's like, okay, I've done, I did mock rounds yesterday. Today, I'm feeling really nervous about the fact that I still have four threes on my list. Like I have to go to this audition. You don't want one excerpt to be like, you know, so painfully. Yeah, please obviously. don't call this one. Yeah. Yeah, like that just makes you so much more nervous for no reason. You know, you just have to spend the time ahead of time to uh, figure out a strategy for it. You know, uh, either figuring out whatever the technical difficulty is. You know, for Petrushka, I remember in the principal part, there were various sections that are like, like intervallic multiple tonguing stuff, which was never really my strength. And I didn't have like a super organized way of practicing in my fundamentals. Um, and so I just had to like, whenever that card came up, I'd be like, okay, I guess I'm not playing this one at speed. I'm going to do a whole list of threes. I'm going to do them all at half speed, or I'm going to do a modified practice thing that makes me feel more confident about it and will lead to long-term growth on this particular excerpt. You know, you don't take a three and then play it top to bottom, say, oh, that sucked. And then just move on. Like you have to take responsibility for the fact that it's not quite where you want it and figure out some effective practice strategy for it. Um, sometimes it's, I also learned the hard way that you have to prepare different lengths of audition rounds. Um, prelims are often only five or six excerpts, but uh, there was been times in the finals where I had to play like 16 excerpts. <laughs> I remember once I was in the finals, I think it was um, San Francisco Ballet. Uh, and they had a prelim and then they only advanced five people to the finals or to the semis. And so they actually changed it to a final round. They just emailed everyone and said, this is a final now because there are only five of you. And you're going to play the Hindemith with accompaniment at the top. And then here's the six. And, and then there's going to be 16 excerpts after that. So be ready. And I'm just like, oh, my God, what? Like 16? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, that was a long list anyway. And they had tons of stuff from like Cinderella and like other Prokofiev ballets. And like, oh, my God, it was just a whole thing. Um, I remember like the perfect number of, of instruments to bring to that audition would have been six because they had like cornet and rotary. And it was like, oh, my God. Um, so I've learned that the hard way. Definitely do practice rounds that are longer than six, like do some that are 10, you know, especially if you do like ones and twos, but even throw a three in there or whatever. Always do them in a random order if you can. You don't want to get used to doing things in a certain order, even at an audition where you might know the order of the prelim excerpts. Like once I auditioned for the president's own Marine band and they give you a heads up, you know, way ahead of time, like a month ahead, where they're like, these are the five excerpts we're going to ask in this order in the prelim. 
you know, and even then it's tempting to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to do these five in order over and over. But guess what happens after the prelim? You've got a semi and a final with random right, right. orders in it. You know, you don't want to be thinking about like, oh, I always play this one after this one. And so my chops feel like this, you know, um, other aspects of my audition preparation that I think are still really valuable to me are, um, another trick that Benny taught me was like, you do a full visualization, you know, when you do mock rounds, if you can, and that includes have the instruments all packed up like you would when you're walking out on stage. So like when I'm working with my students now, I'll have them put their instruments away, put it in the case, just like they're going to have it, grab their music car, where they're going to have it at the audition, walk out of the room, put their head down for a minute, visualize that they're there, walk in. I act like I'm the real proctor or whatever. And be like, welcome candidate number 56 or whatever. And they walk in, sit down. You want to have a planned place for where your instruments are going to go and what you're going to do with each mouthpiece and mute after you play or before you play. That way you're not like fumbling for stuff in the middle of the round. Um, it seems really neurotic when I'm talking about it now, like to do like this level of focus <laughs> on like where you put the objects around you. But I can only imagine like, oh, in the middle of this extra, there's a mute change in the middle. Oh, shoot, where's that straight mute that I'm supposed to use? And you're like looking around, you can't find it because you didn't yeah. have like an organized way of doing it. I have a story about this. So I took an audition for principal in Detroit. I believe it was the one that Hunter won. And I, um, I played my round and then they asked me to come back and play again later, but it, I hadn't advanced. And so I, I played well enough that they were interested, which is a good sign. <laughs> and then <laughs> I walked out there and I played a excerpt. And then the next one was the game of pairs, the Bartok excerpt. And I looked around and I had left my mute in the warm up room, like a floor above. Oh, no. And so I am like, I turned to practice. I was like, I have to go get my mute. Like, I, I can't play it. And he's like, all right. He said, the, he's like, to the side of the committee, hey, this guy's got to go get his mute. And so now in my head, I'm like, do I take my time and remain calm? Or am I wasting these people's time? So I kind of like ran a little bit up a flight of stairs. I was nowhere in near the shape I am now. Uh, and so I grab my mute and I come back and I sit down. And I'm like, <sighs> he's like, take a second. It's cool. He like handed me some water. It did not go well. So, I mean, you're not, I mean, maybe it's fine, but it's like one extra step that seems neurotic, but you're really just saying like, I would like to think through as much of the scenario as possible. So the few things that end up being sort of uh, unusual are things that I didn't think about and not like, oh, I could have just decided where to put my case and this weird thing wouldn't have been the case. So I right. agree. And that even applies to like the audition booklets too, with all the extra information at the front. Like it's it's one thing to have all the excerpts. It's another to like have it drilled into your mind, like what the location is of the audition, you know, and to know exactly what time you're supposed to show up to check in and that kind of stuff, because you have everything prepared and then something like that can shoot you in the foot. Like you're there the morning of and you're like waiting around, you're not sure where to be. And then you end up running or you end up just like getting flustered because you don't know what's going on exactly. Um, you know, those are things that I like. Those are variables that I like to control with my preparation. Yeah. Uh, That's cool, man. Like, I wish I would have done that when I was younger. I mean, I have my own system now, but as I hear you talk, it's like there are elements of your system, even even as organized as as I am at this stage, there's still elements of like, 
it's the it's sort of the fine details that I feel I feel like I have this big picture of where I want to start and how where I want to end six weeks from now, and I feel super confident. But I really dig that you're even like I want to know where it's going to be, when exactly the audition, just so there's like nothing, absolutely nothing left to chance. Yeah, well, because I just I'm an anxious person. Like I need to have that level of detail in my preparation, just so I'm not. I still think about it all the time anyway. <laughs> like even with the preparation. Um, but having it there just makes it so much easier for me to sleep at night. Like I still sure. have the dreams, you know, everybody's got the dreams where it's like, oh, I'm on the flight. I forgot this stuff, you know, like, oh, I'm on my way to the audition and I forgot this other thing. Um, but then that's never happened to me in real life because of these preparations, luckily. Well, if anybody out there is, I mean, although there are no orchestral auditions currently, um, this is still good food for thought and how you might approach it when they inevitably work their way back around again. So hopefully this has been helpful. I think one thing I would love to move on to is your YouTube channel because it's like, I, I think a medium that obviously as people know, I have my own YouTube channel doing the similar thing. But what I dig is you are, I think you did it right. Like you are, I'm serving this specific niche and I love the niche that I'm serving and everything is like, you're not trying to be everything all at once. You're like, this is the thing that I am. And I would love for you just to sort of go and say, well, this is why I started it. Because you started it while we were working together. So, um, you know, to talk through some of why you started it, uh, some of the challenges that you found and how you uh, uh, sort of address these challenges and then possibly uh, reception, both good. And if there's been any weird negative reception, I'm just curious kind of what your experience has been um, all around. Absolutely. So I have to go back a little bit because YouTube is a thing that I've been living with for a long time. Uh, I think about six years ago, my girlfriend at the time, now wife Courtney, needed a new cell phone. And so I searched on YouTube, like, you know, new cell phones. Like, I just didn't know anything about phones besides an iPhone, that's what I had. And I just wanted to find something that was good, like reasonable price and like good value, but like high tech, you know, that would last a few years. And so I found this channel almost right away uh, called Marquez Brownlee, also known as MKBHD. And he is this unbelievable tech YouTuber. I think he's like, 26 now, but he started when he was like a teenager, like a young teenager. He might be like 11 in his first video or like Jeez. 12. I don't know. Um, and he's been doing it for so long, you know, but his like most recent video is like him doing a short interview with Barack Obama. So like, I can tell you how far he's come. Uh, and he's one of the biggest YouTubers, I think, like with tens of millions of followers now. Um, but through that experience, like just trying to find a new cell phone, I could learn so much in such a short period of time because of what these YouTubers have done and turned that platform into. Like there are niche uh, content creators for almost every conceivable subject. Like there was a period, probably at least a six month period where I was super into Rubik's Cubes and I would like watch like Rubik's Cube reviews and like like how to solve like these crazy shaped ones that weren't like the standard you know configuration and whatever. And that was like all I did in my spare time was watch these YouTubers talking about toys, basically, like Rubik's Cubes, <laughs> you know? And not only did I learn how to do it, but I was like obsessed. I was borderline obsessed. And of course I moved on eventually. I still have them somewhere. Um, but, you know, the power of YouTube is that it's just this unlimited niche informational content on any, on any subject. Um, and, you know, just endlessly feed my curiosity. Um, but even as recently as a year ago, I had friends that were like, Hey, we should make a YouTube channel. You ever thought about that? And I was like, there is no way I am doing that. 
<laughs> I'm not sure why I felt that way. I think I just, I couldn't see myself as like being that presenter um, because I was so like into the subjects I was into, but I never saw myself as like the kind of person who would want to start a YouTube channel. I didn't know what kind of personality that took. But then, you know, the pandemic hit, I got sent home from work just like everyone else. And a few things were obvious to me right away. First of all, that my lack of discipline in my personal practice was uh, going to be a problem. <laughs> like, I've always loved to play the trumpet. But playing, in my mind, is a little bit different than practicing. Like, playing is I pick up the trumpet and I noodle around. I pick up music and sight read it. You know, I play stuff I like. I pick up solos that I like. You know, play along with recordings, play with drones, whatever. But I'm not, like, focused on developing specific skills. So it had been a long time since I'd actually worked on getting better at something I didn't know how to do at all. Um, and you know, that was, that was the reason that I reached out to you, Ryan. Like I had been listening to your podcast for a long time, you know, I'm trying to think now how long it's been going on, but probably since almost the beginning, because I've been an avid podcast listener for a number of years now. Um, and I was like, oh, finally a trumpet podcast. Great. <laughs> like our music <laughs> podcast, I guess. Sure. Sure. And, uh, anyway, so we started working together and even within a month of doing some of your routine stuff, I was realizing, I was like, you know what? I am capable of slow and steady improvement on things I do not know how to do currently, you know, intervallic multiple tonguing, like, like quick lick trills, this kind of stuff, like stuff I hadn't really put a lot of effort at for a few years because I didn't need it on the job. Like playing second trumpet is such a fun job. It requires a totally specific set of skills, but like a, a lot of the extreme demands of, you know, hard technical method books are not required for playing second trumpet in, in the orchestra. It'd be nice to be able to do that stuff if it was ever asked, but it almost never comes up, at least in my situation. And so, you know, now with all this time off work, I was just staring at like these gaps in my playing and in my life. So I started working with you and started doing the routine stuff, started seeing that steady improvement that could come. And I realized that most of the conversations I was having with people, probably for the last few years, were these like impassioned lectures about trumpet equipment. Like my <laughs> friends and colleagues, you know, not only at work, but in other places, like people I know from other orchestras or I went to school with or whatever, were like, hey, John, what about this mouthpiece? Or hey, what do you think about this trumpet or whatever? And I would just go off. I would just talk for a super long time, <laughs> like to the point where I was like a little self-conscious about it. I was like, hmm, I do really talk about a lot about this. I mean, I guess they asked, right? So they deserve it, but, um, sure, you know. Sure. <laughs> and so after we started working together, I was like seeing these pieces sort of fell together in my mind. I was like, oh, I can learn how to do stuff I don't know how to do. Namely, make videos, write scripts, you know, make, uh, have high quality video and audio of product reviews, you know, all kinds of stuff. And if I start, then someday I will be good at it if I keep doing it. And also, I already knew I liked the format. I've been watching YouTube videos for so long, I had like sort of a, a sense for how they should go. Mm -hmm. um, I started watching another YouTube channel specifically about new YouTubers <laughs> named uh, Nick Nimmin is his name. Shout out to Nick Nimmin. Yeah, I watch his stuff all the time. Oh my God. I mean, I, I knew nothing about YouTube. Like even though I've been watching for so long, I'd never tried to make any content. Uh, anyway, but he made it so accessible. I could just like binge watch his content and like really get my feet under me about like what it was really going to take. It didn't seem that hard. You know, it's, there's a lot of aspects to it to learn, but for some reason I wasn't nervous about it. Like most things in my life, I'm a little bit nervous of like getting my, getting my feet wet. But this, I was like, you know, I think I actually could do this. I think I can understand this. Um, and this would give me a format to talk about trumpet related subjects so that when somebody asks me a question, I can either say, Hey, go watch this video I made about it. Or 
I'll just know so much more about it from doing the research that was required to do the video that I can give a less um, less long-winded answer. <laughs> like I wanted to be able to give the information in a tight format, uh, and YouTube really allows for that. Like, yeah, of course I could have a 30-minute video, but like most people don't watch 30-minute videos uh, unless you're like really, really dedicated to it. Um, anyway, so I started the channel. Um, it took me about a month or a month and a half before I even released my first video to like come up with a name for it. <laughs> I know that's like its own thing in YouTube land is like coming up with a name for your channel. Right. But eventually my wife had the idea. She was like, well, John talks trumpet. And I was like, that is what I do. <laughs> like that's what I, I talk trumpet all the time. Sure, that makes sense to me. You know, it sort of also fits like a an existing paradigm, at least on Instagram, of like how people name themselves like, oh, you know, Samuel plays brass, shout out to Samuel. Uh, you know, it's just, it's sort of a format that makes sense. You'd like a, a good rule of thumb for YouTube channels is you should be able to look at the name and know exactly what it's about. Um, if you think your channel is going to cover a wide range of subjects, then using your name is a really good idea because then you don't have to rename it if you like end up drifting to a slightly different subject. In my case, I knew all I was going to talk about was talking trumpet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like my, I, I've just been, you know, I, I've probably been reading Trumpet Herald forums since I was a seventh grader, you know, even posting there. Like if you go look on Trumpet Herald, you can like look at my profile history and see stuff from when I was in high school. I was like so embarrassing. But, um, you know, even back then they were so kind and answered my questions. And anyway, so I've always been sort of a trumpet nerd, but um, this was a way for me to like sort of formalize that and give me a vehicle to learn way more than I know now. You know, I'm not an expert. I don't make mouthpieces. I don't make instruments. There are experts out there that do those things. And, you know, I can vamp all I want, but I wanted to know as much as possible about those things. And making a concise video, a well-researched video about each subject would get me there, you know? So it's it's never really been about the idea of like having a lot of subscribers or, you know, get, getting, you know, getting to be monetized or whatever. Like for me, it was never like, oh, I want to make a living doing this. It was like purely a passion project. And I've been so like honored and excited by the level of energy I've seen from my audience. Uh, a few things I've learned from them. Um, I've gotten really encouraging messages from people just like saying like, hey, thanks for creating a cool place for us to hang out like trumpet nerds, you know, like don't be, there's no reason to be ashamed of being a trumpet nerd. There's all this stuff to know about trumpets. Like, why not? Um, I mean, you've even embraced it with your intro where you're like, welcome back, trumpet nerds, or whatever. Like, you've totally, totally embraced that this is who we are and what we're going to do. My friend Gabe, he said something so funny. He was like, you're trying to, like, destigmatize that. Like, it used to be, like, a little bit of a, you know, it's like something you could be embarrassed by. It's like, oh, you know, I don't, you know, because, like, there's, like, the musician type where it's like, oh, I'm so devoted to the music and I practice the music and I, you know, I listen to the music and that's all I care about. For me, like, yeah, music's awesome. Like, I love listening to the excerpts and I love listening to full-length orchestra pieces, but I've always apparently liked talking about trumpet equipment even more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm not going to, like, make a music enthusiast YouTube channel because that's not what I've been obsessed with all these years. It's been these funny things about the trumpet. Um so I learned almost right away, I'll tell you, um, I think the hardest time in my YouTube career so far, which is not very long, I started in August. Um, I, my first video was on the newly released Book of Solos, which Michael Wilkinson edited. And it's basically 30 high quality, originally public domain solos that you can get on IMSLP or whatever, but beautifully printed all in one book, spiral bound, high quality paper, great editor's marks, like actually has all the articulations and stuff. Oh my God, I'm so tired of students using IMSLP versions. Oh my God, I'm so tired of it. 
it's like they're playing off something. And I'm like, where'd you get those articulations? And they're like, oh, there's nothing on my page. I'm like, yeah, because it's free. Like you should, you should <laughs> like buy the real version or buy one real edition anyway. Um, and it was just like perfect timing. You know, I, I didn't tell them that I was working the video because I was just a brand new YouTuber. Nobody cared that I was making a video about, about their product. So I just did a quick unboxing and a quick little review and whatever. And the reception was awesome. Micah saw it and he was like, oh, I had no idea he was doing this. And he shared it. And then the publisher, Book of Solos, was like, whoa, you made a video about our product. That's awesome. You know? And I was like, oh, cool. This is a niche that needs to be filled. Like there are trumpet-related channels out there, great ones, really, really good, high-quality ones, not only for music, but also talking about equipment and stuff. But I felt like there wasn't anything that broke down the specifics in a digestible way, specifically about equipment, um, that would satisfy me. You know, if I like, there needs to be a channel for someone like me about these subjects. So I don't have to like use the site search function on Trumpet Herald to find as much as I can about a given mouthpiece or whatever. Like just make a video about this particular thing. Um, but the heart, the lesson that I learned was, my first video was Book of Solos, and that was great. And the second video I made was how to safely ship a trumpet. Okay, something I care a lot about, I had a lot of experience with from buying and selling trumpets over the years. And I made a crucial mistake, like a video killing mistake. And so I worked all week on it, you know, got all these like funny sort of like little moments in there, like went to a very high level specificity about how to package it and like even how to ship it through USPS or whatever and all the shipping options and what you should choose. And after I posted it, about a day after I posted it, I saw some comments on a Reddit post about it. And this guy was like, hey, this is actually really unsafe. Here's why. And the, the, the actual video where I put the, the footage that I had caught, where I put the trumpet in the box, the box was a little bit smaller than the one I had described in my script. Like I said, there was a particular size that was perfect. And the one that I was packing into was like a little bit imperfect. It wasn't like a, um, a double reinforced box, but also it wasn't quite long enough. So I had to put the trumpet in diagonally, which, you know, I thought it was well packaged enough. You know, it was like super wrapped in bubble wrap and suspended in peanuts, like all the other things I'd said in the video. And I thought because my script was right, that would be good enough. I released the video. Someone was like, hey, if someone actually followed exactly what you did in the video, that would be less than safe, you know, because the trumpet is close to the, the corners of the box. And I was just like, I, I was like heartbroken. I was like, is this it? Like, can I do this? Like, can I make videos <laughs> like this? Like, this is so tough. I had to decide, like, do I want to take the video down? And I was thinking, you know, I'm right at the beginning. Nobody's really paying attention right now. Um, but this person noticed this, like, fatal flaw in this video. I worked so hard on it, poured my heart and soul into it, and I just didn't think it was going to matter. I thought the script was, you know. Anyway, so I took the video down, and I just, like, laid in bed for six hours, just like thinking about whether or not I wanted to keep making videos or not, because I was like, oh my God, I just went through all this effort. And then this one thing killed the video. Um, but it dawned on me, I was like, you know, I'm really lucky that this happened because this is what, this is exactly what I'm trying to avoid with my channel. I don't think we need more channels that give us like dogmatic, but slightly incorrect advice about everything. Okay. There's so many self-proclaimed experts out there on YouTube on any given subject. I don't want to add to that. And I remembered all those things I learned from David Hickman, not only all the playing stuff, but specifically the stuff about researching, you know, like I need to go that extra step and make sure that everything I say and show is supported. Um, so when I did, I took that video down, you know, Courtney was there, comforted me and just was like, 
okay, we're going to do another video this week instead. You know, whatever you were going to do, scrap that. We're going to do another video. It's just going to be about your B-flat trumpet and, like, some of the customizations you had done on it. And that got me out of my funk, like, almost right away. I released the video, you know, saw people liked it. People were interested in the pitch finder. People were interested in the um, vented valve or whatever. And I was like, hey, this is a great avenue for me to continue on with this channel. Like, even though that one video wasn't exactly how I wanted it to turn out, I'll probably release it again someday because I still think it would be good to have a perfect guide out there for... Um, not only shipping or not only packaging it, but also shipping it through the mail. Cause it's sort of confusing with all the insurance stuff. Um, but in the meantime, there's an excellent video by Bob Reeves who has like all of this perfect shop equipment and perfectly sized boxes and stuff. If you ever need to find out how to ship something safely somewhere. Um, anyway, so that was sort of an early difficult experience. I feel very fortunate it happened so early in my YouTube career. It was not the level of accuracy that I wanted. I wanted my channel to be a place where you could go and just trust the information you were being presented without having to question it. And so for me, it was important to take down that video. I'll probably redo it again someday. Um, there have been other videos, one in particular that I released on a sort of a short schedule. Um, and I feel like I didn't cover every aspect of it in a totally complete way. Which, like, you know, I got a message or two about the subject, and they're like, hey, you know, like you said this, but this isn't exactly right. And I'm like, ugh. You know, it happened again. It wasn't a video killing detail because I was being a little vague in the video. But again, I was like, mm, I can't keep doing it like this. Like new video every Tuesday was really important for me from a discipline standpoint. You know, the stuff you and I have been working on. It's like we show up six days a week, we do the practice session, and then we track our progress over the long term. You know, for the beginning, it felt like it was really important for me to keep making videos because I would learn something new from every video that I did. I would try some new strategy, try some new microphone, try some new lighting thing, try some new editing thing, learn how to do better scripts, learn how to do better outros, that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, now I'm at a point where my, my channel has gained a little bit of traction. It's still a small channel, and I, you know, I'm loving it. I'm loving the way things are going so far. I have about, I don't know, 470 subscribers now. And the community that's building around my channel is, like, just a bunch of people that I love to talk to. Like, they send me messages. They're like, hey, I played this mouthpiece, and, you know, what would you think about, you know, what do you think about this brand of mouthpiece? Have you ever heard of this or whatever? And I'm like, hey, I'll talk about this all day, you know? Yeah. Um and so now I'm entering like a new phase. Like now I've been busy, super busy with my work at the Charlotte Symphony, which has been awesome. So happy to work there. So happy to have all the roles that I have there. Uh, I'm also a union steward, which means that I'm like sort of there to help enforce union rules um, in the orchestra along with the orchestra committee. Uh, but I've also been working as a camera operator uh, because that's just something they needed. And I was already there from doing my union stewarding. But that all those roles sort of kept me from doing the full amount of research and sourcing that I wanted to do for every video. So as of my last video, I'm like, you know what? New videos every Tuesday. It was a great thing for me. I think for now, I'm just going to put it aside. I might still release videos that often or even more often than that, but it'll only be when I'm perfectly happy with the amount of research and sourcing that's gone into it. I, I think it's... As someone who generates content all the time, like I get how overwhelming it is and you know if you're not fully on top of it then you know you're gonna have like a rough weekend with a slight amount of stress trying to figure out how you're gonna get it going um you know sort of to cap this discussion knowing you before you started all of this um i, I think i would be interested in you sort of talking about this like one percent improvement idea because what you said about working on this practice routine 
and how it kind of showed you that you could do these other things is like is like the whole point actually of what I hope to be able to provide is showing that being disciplined in a certain way in one aspect of your life should possibly help you see what if I did this in other aspects of my life, what would the result be? And so what we're looking for in the practice routine is just small incremental improvement in a controlled environment, you know? And so with your thing, like looking at your room now, <laughs> as opposed to when we first started, it was like all, I mean, nobody, you guys obviously can't see it, but John had white walls and it was just chill. Now he's got this like kind of like blue sort of like fuchsia vibe going on. He's got good lighting. Like obviously things got upgraded. I would love some of your thoughts just on um, this 1% improvement idea where you got some of your inspiration, like how you took it upon yourself to say that I'm not going to try to do it all. It's just totally fine if I do it a little bit by little bit. Um, I mean, you sort of touched on it, but maybe a more in-depth discussion might be nice. Sure. So the thing is about, so it might surprise some people, but I actually didn't have a studio when the pandemic sent everyone home. I got home, I had all these trumpets, I had students that were asking to do Zoom lessons and stuff, and I had nowhere to teach them. You know, I could pull out my laptop and like go into the guest room and try to make it work, but I didn't have all the stuff I needed in one place and I wasn't, I just wasn't set up. And so um, we had a guest room and then we had this other room that we just called like the yoga room. It was completely empty and I had a yoga mat on the floor and my wife would do yoga in here and that was it. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I actually, would you mind if I take this room? <laughs> like, I kind of need a place to exist now, you know? Like, we've got our bedroom, but I'm not gonna, like, put all our trumpets in the bedroom. Um, you know, I needed a, a closet to, like, store all my cases and all of my extra trumpet equipment. I needed, you know, bookshelves for all my trumpet books, like, just things that I hadn't found a place for yet in our house. Um, so, you know, she very generously allowed me to have the room and helped me set it up. And when you and I first started working together, it was, like, the first prototype of the room. There was like two pieces of furniture in here and a chair, you know, because we had no extra furniture for it yet. Um, but, it, you know, over the course of weeks, we sort of like kept rearranging stuff. You know, my parents moved here in May. So my mom came over and helped me like hang up stuff on the walls. And it like started to sort of feel like a home. Um, and it started to look kind of like a set, actually. I was like, oh, now I can teach Zoom lessons and feel like I, you know, am in a place where I belong and I look like I belong here and I've got all the stuff I need, all the mouthpieces, all the trumpets, all the music and stuff right within arm's reach. Um, and when I started the YouTube channel, I had to experiment a bit with like shooting different angles in this studio, um, trying to find something that, that looked right, had the proper amount of light, you know, whatever. And so for every video, uh, I saw on a YouTube video, probably one of Nick Newman's videos, where it's like the general rule is if you want to get into YouTube, just know like the first hundred videos you do are going to be sort of bad. Like just like he calls it like a hundred crappy videos, you know? And I was like, I'm just going to take that to heart. I'm just going to own it. I'm going to make the first video. I'm not going to wait too long. I have the motivation now to start the channel. I don't know anything about lighting. I don't know anything about audio besides what stuff I've done for recording trumpet. I don't know anything about shooting unboxings or product reviews. I'm just going to go for it. And then every week I'm going to be able to watch the video as it's released, see the reception and learn stuff from it. Um, so I would learn just a tiny thing at once. Like the first video I remember releasing, I watched the Book of Solos video and I was like, oh my God, there's so much room sound. Like, how do I avoid that? Like I just recorded it on my iPhone from like several feet away. That was the only audio I had. And people were like, oh, you got to work on your audio. And I was like, hmm, how do I fix that? You know? And so I found there was like a USB dongle that I could plug into my phone and then I could use my Zoom. 
and then bring it up to my face. And then suddenly I've got like a great, you know, almost like podcast style voiceover. Um, so that's been really good. And then we sort of like, how do we make the set more interesting? How do we like add more light to it? And each week I would just sort of focus on one little thing that I could improve because I knew people liked that first video, even though there were so many things wrong with it in terms of production <laughs> value, in terms of production value and scripting and all this other stuff. Um, I knew that it was just going to, like like I said, 100 crappy videos. Like, you've got a long time. Figure it out. So I just would do one thing at a time. I only had one week in between each video, so I couldn't, like, learn a whole new video software, buy a bunch of new lights, get a new camera, get a new microphone all at once because I wouldn't have time to do any content. I would just be setting up new equipment and trying to figure out how to operate it. Um, so it had to sort of, by necessity, be one little step at a time. Um you know, and up to the point where, you know, now I feel like the quality of the videos is pretty good. And I still have made a pretty minimal investment on the stuff I'm actually using to produce the channel. I use my iPhone 11 for the video, which shoots 4K video. It doesn't look like a DSLR exactly because it's like sort of clear in the background versus a DSLR, which has like sort of like a focused look on the person and then sort mm -hmm. of blurrier background. Um, I have no lights. I just use my Philips Hue lights for color and then daylight for my face. And then I use a, a cheap desk lamp for the fill light on the other side of my face. Um, you know, I use a music stand and a blanket to like hold up the microphone close to my face. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and the end result, I feel is pretty good. Like, could it be improved? Of course. You know, there's so much equipment out there that addresses some of the smaller issues that I've had. Uh, just little things like it's been difficult to, like I'll often have my shooting sessions on Saturday or Sunday morning. And then sometimes I'll like put all the video in and like start editing in iMovie because I still use the free iMovie software, which has been really good for me um, and realize that I sort of left something out or like there's something else I need to sort of plug in that I don't want to just do in a voiceover, which I could do in GarageBand. And so I'll go back and get my thing set up again and try to shoot again. But the lighting is all different because I was using the sun and, you know, uh, even the color in the room has a different level of saturation because of the time of day. Um, so that's, you know, a little improvement I'm going to make. At some point, I'll get like a boom microphone instead of using the zoom like right up to my face you know, that kind of stuff. I'll probably get some real lights at some point. Um, I have a good tripod. That's the one thing. My dad lent me a <laughs> tripod because he has a DSLR. And he was like, I'm not using this. You can have this tripod. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I know that YouTube is a journey. It's a long journey. Um, you know, like I said, Marquez Brownlee, he's been making videos for like, I don't know, 10 years, like longer. And his videos are obscenely high quality now. Like he uses like a red you know, like 8K camera or something crazy because he's like a tech YouTuber. But like, I know I don't need that to have good content. I've watched channels that were amazing channels where it's just like a guy talking into a camera with no effects for 10 minutes, you know, with yeah, like iPhone right. level audio. Like it's about the content, like not about the gear that you're using. Um, so even if you look in the description of my videos, I'll always say what gear I'm using, not only to make the video, but the trumpets that I play in the video. Um, Anyway, but like working with you on those longer term practice projects, things that I've been ignoring for a long time, uh, just it reminded me about this concept that I learned, thanks again to my friend Gabe, when I was at Brevard, he was like, hey, you should read this book called Mindset by Carol Dweck. And I was like, sure, why not? And I bought it on my Kindle and read it that summer. And it was like life changing. I was such a, uh, for any of you that don't know about it, you know, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, they talk, she talks a lot about these two types of mindset that you can have about different areas of your life. There's fixed mindset and growth mindset. Fixed is, I believe I will always be this level of ability at this skill. Oh, I'm bad at math. Oh, I'm good at acting, whatever. You know, I just made up things for myself. But, but the growth mindset is the belief that you can improve at anything that you apply deliberate practice to and you have guidance from, uh, guidance for. So 
you know, at the time that I met Gabe and I was at Brevard, I had a certain opinion of myself and my playing. I wasn't sure if I would succeed being a trumpet player, but I liked it enough, you know, and I read this book and I was like, oh, wait, I can get better and like get better at the stuff that I'm not good at. Um, and that led to all this growth over the course of those few years when I was in school. But then since starting my professional career, it's a little easy to get um, too comfortable, I think, with your level of playing, because it's like, especially as a second trumpet player, there's only a certain amount that's really being asked of you. Like, yes, I work hard and yes, I play a lot at work, but not a lot of glamorous solos necessarily. Like it's not a lot of moments where everyone's looking at you and saying like, oh yeah, that that extra practice really, really paid off there. That solo was beautiful. Um, and so, you know, by the time everyone was sent home for the pandemic, I was like, well, shoot, I really need a way to like sort of address some of these issues. And I'd never been the kind of like studious discipline practicer that I knew I had to be to get better at some of those less fun skills. You know, like um, Professor Butler always talks about like keeping all the plates spinning, like learning the new skills and then keeping the other ones going and practicing all of them all the time kind of thing. Um, I knew that there were some plates I had dropped a long time ago and never went back to. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I just think... That's it. That's like what it looks like to have growth in any aspect of of any part of our life. I, I learned it through working out. You know, there were workout. I, I would get. I I think so. So much of my platform. Not that I know this is my podcast. I I have other places to talk about it. But so much of my platform is built from this understanding that if you are given a plan by someone who's smarter than you, then like you can trust that. And so, or at least knows more about that particular thing. It's a better way to say it. So I bought a workout program from somebody and I was like, this is insanely hard. And he was like, okay, well, all of the work is decided for you. You just have to decide if you're going to show up and do your best. He wasn't even saying like, you have to do everything perfectly. It was just like, show up and try. And so the thing that happened within me as I made this shift towards, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to take as long as it takes to finish these workouts. And it was brutal, but I saw myself get better at them over the course of time. And that just that three month period of time changed how I saw everything about myself because I saw myself get better at this thing that I thought I was like, how is this going to be possible? Well, all that was possible. I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other, but I needed a plan that made sense. If I was trying to develop my plan at the same exact time, I feel like it would have been much more difficult to have the same kind of success, which is essentially like why I'm doing what I'm doing. But you know, once you see it in one area, you can sort of reverse engineer that plan and then say, oh, well, these are the things that were important about that plan. These are the principles about that. And I think from there, like you're not necessarily set, but you have proven to yourself that you can grow. I think it's a super important thing for that everybody has available to them, but uh, everybody's got their own level of, you know, stuff to deal with to, to sort of sift through and get there, I think. Absolutely. And that's why when I think about now, like how somebody would be like, hey, we should start a YouTube channel. I'd be like, no way. You know, I just saw the huge mountain of things I didn't know how to do in my way. Um, and so I never really took the idea seriously. And then, you know, when you and I started working together and I saw that there was this, you know, like Olympic athletes have trainers, you know, uh, professional athletes of any kind, they have trainers that decide this stuff for them and help them figure out how to do it, how to maintain it themselves. And I figured, why not musicians? I'm a professional musician. That doesn't mean I should be so ashamed that I can't ask someone for help when I need it. Um, and why was that the right decision? Like working with you was an awesome experience. Like you're very like in our meetings, you know, 
I would, you know, we would talk about, you know, if I was having any issues with discipline or like actually showing up to practice six days a week, like that was sort of my biggest issue was that I didn't play consistently. You know, I would play for fun, but it wasn't like, it was rarely the same thing day to day. And so it made it hard for me to see long-term progress on any given uh, skill that I was trying to improve. And, and it absolutely transferred over to other aspects of my life. Like, I can't believe that I decided to start a YouTube channel. I can't believe that now when people come to ideas and they see that, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, John's a YouTuber or whatever. Like, I'm like, really? Like, six months ago, I wasn't anything. Like, I wasn't doing this at all. I was just a trumpet player. Um, but they, they look at it and they see that I'm doing it. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Even though I didn't see myself doing it, you know, I, you're right. Like I completely changed how I saw myself just from developing this other thing in my life. Like now I have a high level of confidence and patience. You know, I, I know that if I keep doing this, like 100 cap videos, new video every week, whatever, um, the videos will just keep getting better over the long term. I'll have some good experiences. I'll have videos that unexpectedly take off. I'll have videos that don't go as well or aren't as re well researched as I want and learn important things from that too. Um, and I'll still be providing value for a community that needs it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the idea of 100 crappy videos terrifies me because if you release one episode, one video per week, it would take over two years to hit that. Like that is like a mind boggling. I haven't even done 100 podcast episodes yet, you know? It's just <laughs> mind boggling that somebody like Nick Nimmin, I'm sure all YouTubers would agree who've produced content for that long, would say that, but thinking how would you produce that much content is like, so it's just like you almost have to take it day by day in my opinion. Like I used to try to batch content and think ahead and now basically on Thursday, I usually shoot on Friday and Saturday and on Thursday, I'm like, what do I wanna talk about this week? That's like as far as I get these because I can't think that far ahead without with how much is going on. But it also has the, the nice effect of being current. Right. And that's good. So, you know, maybe you know you have a thing next weekend, you're going to be out of town. Maybe you try to batch a little bit of content. But um, it being current means that you could see a comment someone said on an Instagram post and you're like, oh, sweet, I have a video idea now, you know, like Definitely. something as simple as that. So um, absolutely. And and I, I knew one thing I did before I started the channel to prove to myself that it was a good idea. I read, uh, I heard somewhere, might have been Nick Nimmin was like, Okay, make a list of 100 video ideas. Like, do it. If you want to start a channel and you want to start it on a certain niche to find out if you have enough content to really make that channel thrive, if you can come up with 100 ideas, you've got something. You've got something that's sustainable because those 100 ideas will seed, you know, thousands of other ideas, you know, that'll become a long-term project for you. But if you can only come up with like 10 or 15, it's like maybe that should be content that you produce in a personal channel where you just talk about stuff you like to talk about. And that's totally fine too. It's just, that's the difference between a niche channel and like a personality-based channel. Um, and so for me, I didn't come up with 100. I came up with about 40. But I knew that those 40 ideas, I was like, oh man, these are strong ideas. I have ideas of who I could talk to about each of these videos. I know that making them will seed ideas for further content. I mean, there's just endless amounts of trumpet nerd stuff out there to talk about. And I would love to learn about all of it and do, you know, things with pretty reasonable scientific rigor. You know, I'm thinking about like decibel meters and like, how do you compare mouthpieces of different cup depths, but have the other variables controlled for, you know, like I want two mouthpieces that are exactly the same, but with slightly different cup depths or slightly different rim sizes or whatever, and then evaluate what the actual differences are, you know, in some sort of objective way. Yeah. Uh, so we're not talking like, we're not always talking dogmatic, you know, about these subjects. 
or even like referring to like a hundred year old Vincent Bach catalogs and what they say, <laughs> you know, like Vincent Bach was a genius and made beautiful instruments, but like we have much better tools now to objectively evaluate instruments and mouthpieces. And I hope to bring a lot of that to my channel. That's great, man. I, like it's such a good sell. Like I'm sold and I already support what you're doing, you know, <laughs> it's awesome. I think, you know, like mine is like personality based, you know, and so it has a little bit of leeway, but I, I observe your channel and like your channel has grown more than mine has grown. Um, and I think it's because you're just keeping the quality insanely high and you're like, this is my niche. I think niche stuff like has better growth potential because it's the place that people will go to get that information. Like you're synonymous with I, or you can be with some people you are and you will continue to grow into being, I have a trumpet related question. I'm going to check out John talks trumpet. And then the rest is history. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and sometimes that covers other subjects. I like to talk about like pedal tones, you know, like that's, I don't really talk about pedal tones that often in real life, but I play them every single time I pick up the trumpet. And sometimes, sometimes people give me that look like, what's that? Like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> yeah. like how, what? Like, I think that's your most viewed video. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of my best performing videos and people are like, Whoa, you know, but I, Dave Hickman taught me that. Like, I, I think I was messing around with it when I was in high school a little bit, you know, because I, I saw it was like a thing on Trumpet Herald, like false tones and pedal tones. But I think by the end of my freshman year, I had a good pedal C. Um, I was playing on this huge mouthpiece, the David Hickman Big Boy, uh, getting some <laughs> Webster mouthpiece, which is like a 1B with a Neil Sanders cushion rim and a 24 throat. And a it's like a big 24 backboard with a 117 sort of flare at the bottom. And that made it really easy to make a pedal C. And uh, yeah, so, but then that sort of carried over to the other mouthpieces I've played and I've just always messed around with it. It's like my little party trick. Yeah. Um, but, you know, mostly I do want it, it's it's mostly about equipment. And I think another inspiration for the channel was that growing up, there was really not that many layers in between the marketing of a certain product and what promises the marketers had for a thing that they came up with and the customer. There was nothing really in between that. Like I could search on Trumpet Herald and see if people had been talking about it already and see if they had any experiences to share. But even that stuff was just like subjective experiences with a particular product. So a lot of times it's like, oh yeah, you know, this mouthpiece maker says that their mouthpiece does this and I, that was my experience. And then the next comment would be, that was not my experience. You know? Right, right. But there was no like objective way of sort of talking about the characteristics and why they, that claim would be made and whether or not it's objectively true or not. And so my that was a huge part of the inspiration for my channel. I want to be a middle layer between the marketers and the people who have these really cool, amazing products to sell um, and all of the language that they use to help sell it which is a little bit different than like objectively uh, researched and sourced scientific information that can give you an idea of how the product is actually supposed to function. Um, yeah. I hope to serve that sort of middle ground. That's great, man. Well, and you're obviously well on your way with a mindset that there's really no reason that you couldn't do that and, and be that. And I just think it's so cool. And I'm, I'm just glad to know you, man. It's inspiring stuff. And, I appreciate you giving me your time here on the podcast today. If uh, anybody is like, I mean, they may know this, but if there's anybody that thinks I got to talk to John, seems like a really nice guy and he knows a lot about the trumpet, where might people be able to find you? Okay, so I have a, uh, a Facebook page, John Talks Trumpet. You can come find me there. I have an Instagram page. It's a little bit, I was started even a little bit earlier than that. That's also called John Talks Trumpet now. Just used to be my handle and then I changed it. It was the first ever John Talks Trumpet page. Like when Courtney came up with the idea, I was like, 
I think I need to change my Instagram page name to John Talks Trumpet and just make it real. Made a little logo and everything. Um, you can also find me on my YouTube channel and comment on one of my videos or whatever. That's totally fine. I do get a lot of private messages on Instagram. That's that's perfectly uh, easy way to contact me. Um, on my Facebook page, I also have my email address listed. It's johntalkstrumpet at gmail.com. Um, you know, I'm happy to talk to anyone who has questions about trumpet nerdy subjects or has ideas for future videos. You know, it's been so fun getting to know you, those of you who have reached out to me, and I look forward to getting to know more of you. Well, reach out to John if you have any, like I said, trumpet-related stuff or just want to tell him that you enjoyed his episode. Um, if you need to get a hold of me, everybody knows what to do at this point, but just for the sake of saying it, that's thatsnotspit.com. That's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, I appreciate you leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, also, don't forget to share it on social media so other people can find the episode and enjoy it as well. Thank you one more time, John, for giving of your time and just uh, being open and having a great conversation with me today. Hey, thanks so much, Ryan. It's been a pleasure getting to know you from working with you, doing the coaching stuff, but also just getting to stay in touch and doing the same. Yeah, appreciate it, man. No problem. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.